Hello to all you survivors out there in the wasteland. We're transmitting from our hermetically sealed bunker beneath the nation's capital, and thank you for joining us on whatever scavenged receiver you've got going today. I'm Evan May, author of The King in Darkness and Bonhomme Seta. And I'm Brandon Crilly, Ottawa-based writer of science fiction and fantasy. Our cozy little bunker is keeping us safe from the world outside, but we also have a lot of time on our hands as we wait for the zombie hordes to pass and finally leave us the hell alone. So we've decided to pass the time by sharing stories. Instead of a campfire, we have the scratch of corpse nails on the hatchway, and instead of the wind in the trees, we have the unceasing moan of the undead. We'll be talking about the stories we love from the world of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, as well as the tales that come from the creation of stories and the creation of art in general. Today we've invited two of our fellow survivors to share their own ideas, experiences, and interests with us here. Here's who will be joining us in the bunker today. My name is Matt Moore, and I am a writer of horror and dark science fiction. My short story collection, It's Not the End and Otherwise, was just released from Cheesing Publications. I am also one of the co-chairs of the Ottawa Kiosuro Reading Series, which is a professional reading series of genre fiction taking place in Ottawa. And what you might not know about me is even though I write horror with blood and guts, uh, the sight of blood or needles can sometimes make me feel faint. I'm Lydia Peeper. I'm a horror author and also help curate new releases for the Horror Writers Association website. And I'm also a professor at Algonquin College. I teach news design and desktop publishing. We're both really looking forward to our conversation today and just as excited that we get to share it with you. Gather around, survivors, and welcome to broadcasts from the Wasteland. Apparently. Do you believe in ghosts? To a certain extent. Have you ever, have you ever seen a ghost? Uh, definitely. Okay. I've heard I've talked with a ghost yeah, when I was very young. Um, my great grandmother, she told I was out in the front yard making a snowman and my mom was watching me from inside in the picture window. Mm-hmm. And it was just getting dusk, so my mom was thinking of telling me to come in. And I saw a rustling in the bushes. And I remember this really clearly. I have like very early memories yeah. up to like six and eight months old. So okay. being three and remembering something is not weird. Yeah. Um, and I looked and I thought there was like an animal or somebody in there. And I, it was a person and it was my grandma Nona, which was weird to me because she was in the wheelchair. So it was like, oh, grandma Nona, you're there. And she said, you better go in. Don't get dirty. And then she looked at me all sternly, which was normal for her. Okay. Her speaking English to me, too, wasn't that normal because she usually just yelled at me in German. Oh, okay. And she'd been dead a year by that point. So, <laughs> okay. But I didn't realize that. Being so young, I didn't really put two two together. Oh. So I came toddling in. My mom said, oh, good. I was just going to call you. And I said, it's okay. Your mom told me to come in. And she's like, no, it's silly. And I told her. And my mom had seen me stop making my snowman, look to the bushes, talk to the bushes, turn around and come in. Wow. Is that is that your only experience that, uh, that you uh, I lived in a haunted farmhouse. We had a couple things. Just thinking you see somebody outside the window. Yeah, which yeah, I yeah. love that in, in horror movies when you see like Michael Myers outside the window and then he's gone. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. That's kinda how it looks when you think you see a ghost. But yeah. I don't know. I could never say right, that yeah, was yeah. a ghost. Did you did you move into the farmhouse knowing it was haunted or did you have the experiences and then find out later that this oh yeah, this place is supposed to be haunted? It's being one of those places where the family lived all of the existence of the house, so it's us that haunted it, right? Okay. So it's not all bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 
um, there might have been one other family that lived there while it was being built. Mm-hmm. Other than that, my grandfather bought it. Do you believe ghosts? I don't believe in ghosts in the overall well-defined notion, but I do think okay. that science right now you know, can't explain everything. There's a lot of stuff that, that happens that our current science can't explain, whether that's ghosts or not, but then you also have to get down into the idea of is a ghost a uh, surviving element of a personality that is that is mm. that persists past death and therefore is uh, an intelligent being. Okay. Versus, and I think this is the difference between my, my terminology is a little rusty, a ghost versus a haunting. And a haunting, I think, is an echo of something. So you go into a hotel and, you know, everyone knows on the 25th floor, if you're walking along at night, you might see... Uh, you know, somebody in an old style chambermaid outfit going to room 26. Right. There's no intelligence there. There is no ability to cognate there. There's just an echo of something. Right. Okay. Part of ghost. It's uh, one of those uh, motorcycle light ghosts. Motorcycles died. And right. If you drive a certain night, certain time, whatever, you'll see this motorcycle come to pass you and you'll move over because he's coming up quite fast right. and then okay. nothing passes you. And it happens to a lot of Oh, interesting. And it's repeatable right yeah. but it's a glitch it's, yeah. Yeah, I think like if anything most hauntings very very high percentage of them if not almost all are completely explainable with mm-hmm. naturally occurring mm-hmm. but those few yeah. and most of those I think are just like glitches when Lydia first interviewed me five six years ago yeah uh, she was asking me as a, uh, as a horror writer because I I had had a story published in an anthology by a publisher who had published her novel Night Fits. Oh, okay. And so it's kind of like, oh, you know, we're, we're distant cousins in that way. Yeah. Uh, post-mortem press, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, uh, I grew up in, in, in my bio says I, I'm, I'm, I grew up in a small town New England place which with legends and ghost stories. And the idea of, do I know any good ghost stories from my hometown? Well, no, I don't know any good ones because the ones I know are fairly mundane. And as I was saying to Lydia, like, I grew up with, with folks who very matter-of-factly would tell you, just like they tell you the color or how many stories were in the house, it's like, yeah, there's a ghost in the attic, mm-hmm. that there is a door that we have a lock and key for, and we lock it from the outside, and the door won't stay locked, and, so, and it'll be swung open, or a light we can't keep from, from turning back on. And they weren't like, and then we go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like... Yeah, like I, uh, there, there. I hear, I hear footsteps up in my attic, and I, it's been my whole life. It's something dangerous. It's something threatening. Yeah, uh, it's it's just the way it is. Like a tap that leaks, or you know, when it really, really rains, the foundation, you know, leaks. It is just a matter of fact thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you wanted to really get a rise out of someone, you'd, you'd add all these details. But these 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 folks, because it was school, I only knew guys. Uh, saying, yeah, like my, my house is haunted, in, but it's 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 also red and uh, you know and on Long Hill Road. Right, <laughs> yeah. that's and, interesting. And so for them, like I'm not gonna really, well, it could be this electromagnetic or how settling it could be. This. Yeah. For them, their factual reality was they lived in a haunted house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I do or do not have that same experience as them, it doesn't take away their reality. And so in that sense, ghosts are real because for that person, a ghost is real. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, when I was doing my my PhD, uh, which is in medieval history, uh, that was one of the best interpretations that I saw of how to think about medieval religious experiences. And I can't remember who wrote this, but it was basically like, 
if you read medieval history, they talk about miracles happening and you know miraculous cures and all, all of this stuff. And you know, how do we assess that? Did any of that happen? And basically, this historian's position was it basically doesn't matter because they had the experience of it happening. And that's how you understand how religion worked to these people. Like, did these miraculous supernatural events happen or not happen? Not the point. They had the experience of them happening. And yeah, that's the same kind of thing you're talking about with the, with the ghosts. That, yeah, for these people, they have the experience of living with the ghosts. To, the, to that point, I had a psych professor in the university who he had the like the screen back when we had screens and blackboards. Yeah, uh -huh. Google it, youngsters. <laughs> I a screen in my class. And he, he, we were talking about that kind of experience of subjective reality versus measurable objective reality that we can all agree upon. And so he he had something on the board, and uh, he said, "There's something written behind there, and I want somebody to read it. I want to volunteer." And so I was like, "Oh, like I'm an extrovert. I'll do." But what is this? What is it? Says? And said something like. I'm just making this off the cuff. So he went to the well to see about getting water. It's like, okay, go and read it again. Like, and, or somebody else reads it. Like, like he went to the well to see about blah, blah, blah. And then, he's, and then I think a third person read it, or maybe it was just two. But the word the ended and began a line. Okay. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so nobody saw it. And everybody <laughs> who was awesome. in the class reading along was convinced the word the was only there once until he pointed it out. And it was the most vertigo-inducing, like, nauseating yeah. thing. And what he called it was seeing witches. Because we were talking about Salem and, and hysteria, okay. and it was their reality, because that's their frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And so when he did that, and we saw that there were two thes there, he said, congratulations, you've just seen a witch. That's awesome. Yeah. That you know? must be how it feels when you put two and two together after your pigs die. Wow. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> <coughs> I'm putting that in my back pocket for my students. I'll see if, and I tried it with a friend of mine uh, at work, and I wrote something like that in the word the, and I'm like, this isn't going to work. And, and lo and behold, he, he said the once, and said, read it again. And he, and this time, he was certain he was right. Yeah. And then when I pointed out the second the, it's just, it's this idea of, it's a magic trick. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you've tricked me, you've done something. Like, nope, I have had this piece of paper in front of you the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, read it again. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's no hand waving going on, it's just, that's awesome. But it's all perception, right? Like, our perception is so fundamentally flawed. Like, the, the inputs that we get, that it's very easy to fool us. Or to, um, I don't want to say see things that aren't there, because that's not what I'm trying to say. But well, you, it, you fill in the blanks. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm trying to get. Your brain makes up so much information, yeah. and you're trusting it. Because, mm, yeah. you know, until you know that your brain's making up information, you do 100% trust your mind. But then, yeah, when somebody, I'm, I'm more apt to, when somebody says, oh, do you remember what that person was wearing? I'm more apt to be like, well, I remember that it was a blue coat, but it could have been any color, right? Right. Yeah. I don't know how the human brain works. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, your brain is like filling in so much information, but children in class don't know that. So no, exactly. It's ten times more fun yeah. to really, yeah. really make them see what you're doing. Yeah. My favorite thing to do with whenever I teach a grade level social studies class is um, to get them to think about the fact that how do you know that the, the desk in front of you is actually physically there and you're touching it with your hands? Like, really think about how your perception works and how the physical world works. And I, I keep reinforcing that. Eventually, like, sir, you need to stop talking. Like, like you're freaking us out. And I'm like, good. Okay, now moving on. Uh, now you're all made of atoms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dwell on that, children. Oh, look, that's the bell. <laughs> well, grade 11, though, they should already have dwells on that. Yeah. You know? Well, I, you, I was just thinking about the biggest difference that I've noticed. I assumed at one point that like this generation of students must have like super excellent research skills because you know they've grown up no. with the web and they're, no they're terrible no. at it, it. the yeah. exact opposite. yeah yeah and then exactly. when i eventually realized that like it it changed my expectations and my approach to, to dealing with them because yeah. i had been assuming well they must be super research experts because they've grown up with the web and searching for what they want but no like 
They're not excited by the web, and they don't use it. Well, and yeah, they will do a search, and if what they're looking for isn't literally the first result, then yeah. it's it doesn't exist. It's not out there. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that's astonishing. Yeah, it was. It's really interesting because when I when the web first started coming around in the nineties, and I built my first website professionally in ninety six. Okay, so I've been using this for a while. That I would find, and this is you know over twenty years ago. People say, oh, I'm looking for this on the internet. I can't find it. But being university educated and in, um, I did my degree in social psychology, where a good chunk of any research project is spent in the library saying, has anybody else done this before? You learn yeah. and hone your research skills. Of, These are the words I'm going to use. This is too broad. I'm going to introduce this yeah. word. Okay, that's too narrow. And you, 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 you don't even look at, well, you look at the results, but before you can find what you want, you need to learn how to find it. Yeah. Exactly. And so for me, I was able to find stuff online that other people weren't just because they had that, that skill set. Mm-hmm. And so it's, that's really interesting to hear that this mountain of information is just being yeah. ignored. And totally. you know, we came from the, the card catalog, at least you and I came from the card catalog. Yeah, no. I was just thinking yeah. of the card yeah. catalog when you were saying knowing how to look things up. Which was frustrating, but it was it was there, mm. and so you could pull that you know that fucking thing out and then flip through the 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 car. I'm, I'm pantomiming looking through a card catalog. <laughs> Again, look it up, and so you could see okay, there's there's six books in this library right now, no more, no less mm. on this particular topic because it's the Dewey Decimal System, you know, blah 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 da 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 da. Yeah, totally. and so and they're all going to be in a row on the shelf, and it's a gaze me see also. To find, yeah. to find the other. So it wasn't this infinite yeah. pile. And so learning to, to sift through them. And so that's, and that, and I, you know, does that relate to critical thinking? The idea of it's a failure of critical thinking to think if I do a search for X and it's not the first result, it's not out there. That's, yeah, that's a fallacy. Yeah, totally. And I, I've been, I've been as guilty of it as any other teacher in that the first few years of, of my high school teaching career, I assume that my students would know how to do basic research skills. I figured by the time they get to me in high school, someone must have taught it to them. But everybody had the same assumption that, you know, students that have grown up with the internet, oh, they're fine. They can parse through that infinite web of, of, of knowledge, and they can. Um, the bait of my existence, though, is, I don't know when Google started doing this, but you, you type uh, a question into Google, and it comes up before even, before any web results, or any websites, it comes up with a box with the answer in it. Mm. And my students will just take that and copy it into whatever sign. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not. Vile. It's, it's that's awful. Vile. It's absolutely awful. I use that. Like, I look at it. Well, yeah, I, but, but I don't. Yeah, the, I wouldn't the, use it in a paper or something. They totally will. And, and the, how I trip them up is um, I have them look up uh, for the Second World War um, static warfare versus mobile warfare. And I have them look it up. And then whatever definition they find, like because I know the definition that comes up for mobile warfare has to do with nothing that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, but they just go copy and I go, okay, here's your evidence that that doesn't work. You actually need to like read your sources. Sorry, students who eventually yeah. listen to this podcast, but work on your research. I'm just thinking there's a story somewhere. I don't know whether it'd be a horror story or not, but there's a story somewhere about a society where all the information still exists, but no one can access it. It's uh, worse oh. than the, the missing and uh, mythological Alexandria. Yeah, that yeah. yeah, you know, it's all it's all out there, but no, no one can access it, and, and you know, perhaps, perhaps not, perhaps deliberately, perhaps not. So there's a story in there somewhere. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. AI, um, because again, I I'm out of touch when it comes to horror. Is AI something that like is it old hat? Like is AI been to death in horror? Do you think? Oh, or? I just watched the best film, and I usually like to keep it literary when we're talking books. No, no, yeah, we, films. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, 
Upgrade. Has anyone seen this called Upgrade? Um, a friend of ours, Jay Ojek, was telling me about that the other yeah? day. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, and it's on my list of, of ones to watch, and it mm-hmm. sounds phenomenal. It truly is, and that will, that marries sci-fi and horror brilliantly, oh, yeah. and it is terrifying. What, I, what's the horror aspect of it? I thought it was just sci-fi. Uh, I'd say watch it. Alright, okay. No spoilers. I'd say watch it. And it's not like, um, it it does get into like physical uh, horrors, and there is some uncanny valley. It depends on what freaks you out. Right. But the idea that this is a film done by the creator of Saw. So, oh. yeah, there there is a little bit of a, a mind fuck. Like, there isn't a lot of good sci-fi, right? And it is that sort of ex- existentialist, existentialist horror. I always think AI is pretty ripe for use in horror. Because, like like you were saying about the way those AI machine learning programs come up with unexpected outcomes. I mean, it is an alien intelligence that's fairly easy for us to encounter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of our creation that doesn't always do what we expect is obviously kind of fun to play around with. But to me, I, like, I, I look at, I think it's, it's been done all over the place, right? Like, like what, like, how do you do that and make it new and fresh? And I can't well, think of any titles lately, but Ray Bradbury, of course, brings to mind when it comes to that right, sort yeah. of stuff. But anyone recently? I don't, but I think what, what would work with horror, because with, with sci-fi, it's the sociological implications, and horror is much more personal. Because oh, okay. you used to use the you used the word alien, and I was going to use the word alternate for AI and horror. Is it's mm. an alternate form of intelligence? So Cthulhu has an intelligence completely different than ours, right? Okay, and looks at its reality in a different way. The same, which is comparable to a machine. A machine is only as good as its programming and its data set, right? Or an extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional intelligence, or or a monstrous. Intelligence. Oh, like the troops right. that's taking over like a parasite. So, you know, the idea, but the idea of machine intelligence to make it effective horror, you would need to bring it back to the personal. Okay. So, how would a machine intelligence affect what does it mean to be human? And so, you, when you kind of scratch that, you, you tend to drift, I think, more towards science fiction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can't think of anybody who's really used. I've heard this movie Search, which I haven't seen. Mm, but it's supposed to be, um, I don't know much about it, but all the reviews are saying we really can't tell you what it is, except I think the entire movie appears on somebody's computer screen. The other one is John Cho. He plays a, so, yeah. a, a dad who's like his daughter was missing, and he's trying to put the pieces together, and it's all off of her webcam or something. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, saw, I saw a trailer for that. It looked really, really sharp. Hmm. So I don't know if that's AI or, or yeah. not, but, yeah. but just the idea of some alternate intelligence telling you this is tr- this is... There's there's fact and then there's truth. Oh, okay. And I think that idea of you know how much of our of our own humanity and is critical thinking a humane element or not, you know, but for me, I think that's where horror and AI would, would kind of intersect is it's not this isn't the best recipe for chimichangas, there's no <laughs> <laughs> But the idea of the AI telling you, Oh, guacamole never existed, it was all in your head. Oh man! Then, no. then we're in a horror. Damn yeah. it! <laughs> or as, as a joke, I heard this is so terrible. One partner abusing the other. There's no such thing as gaslighting. You just made it up. <laughs> oh, that's rich. Oh that's man! Oh, I like that. It's because you're crazy. No one, no one else has ever heard of gaslighting. I just listened to um, Faculty of Horror podcast. They were covering the Stepford Wives, and I had to stop oh. the show halfway through because they also covered the film Get Out which I haven't watched yeah, yet, I, haven't I, need to, I need to watch it before I listen to the well, yeah. podcast but the whole beginning was Stepford Wives and that's okay. what I started thinking of when you 
thing. Gaslighting doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I definitely need to Don't ever that. say that or do that or use that. Anybody who's listening, that's a terrible thing to do. Because that may not be an AI that's thing, cool. but it is, of course, a science fiction or crossover, right? Yeah, yeah. I have seen Get Out. It is, uh, it is worth seeing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's, it on, it's on my list of things I need to see. Yeah. It keeps bumping up my list. The list, again, is huge, and the yeah, to-read yeah. list is huge. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I meant to, uh, when we were emailing before, uh, for today, um, I think, the Haunting of Hill House okay. came up, and, and so I was like, okay, i got to go in and watch this. I'm only two episodes in. <laughs> I'm only two episodes in. Oh, okay. How are you enjoying it so far? Uh, it's not bad, and I had a little bit of... I, I didn't... I don't have any spoilers or anything, so like I, I'm pretty spoiler-free. I don't read a lot of uh, like entertainment news and stuff like mm. that online, so that's helpful. But I did know going in that there was a lot of people saying, this is nothing like the book at all, and having a little bit of a freak out. And it was... Um, but this is horror podcast. We're talking about how much they like it and how much they appreciate it, mm-hmm. and they appreciate what he's doing with the whole Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a fan jamboree as far oh, as Shirley Jackson goes. Yeah, yeah. So I do enjoy that very much. Yeah. Okay. It does feel a little long though. It feels like a little stretched out. Like uh, after yeah. two episodes, I'm like, why couldn't I have absorbed what I need to absorb from these two episodes in ten minutes of a film? Yeah, but we'll see how that. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt that when I was watching the second episode. Yeah. Like the first episode, I would, I thought was, was great. It introduced all these characters, and, and there was enough horror that enough moments that I had to avert my eyes. And then, uh, but then the second episode, it was it was all that was one thing, but it was all to do with one event. Yeah, that I thought I think they could have. I kept waiting for okay, when's the next? Like, I want a ghost to jump out. Yeah, right, and then it just kind of didn't happen. And so yeah, I'm with you there. I think it's more story, more. not just like we zoomed in yeah. on this one like day yeah, yeah yeah and after reading the uh the, like, the description for episode three popped up when i paused it on my netflix um and reading that description that like i'm worried that it's going to get into every episode is going to focus on one member of the family and be the very introspective and... okay. well, that, well that's what it did I, I watched it all oh, okay Good. and i'll try to avoid spoilers but structurally it's a challenge because the first episode introduces the five kids the two parents i think both housekeepers yeah uh Yes. Yeah, you're right. Both of us are there. So um, you've got the kids in the past, the kids in the present, the parents yeah. in the past, the parents in the present, and their spouses and stuff in the present. In, in, in the present, the housekeepers. Um, I can't recall if they're in the present in the first episode or not. But uh, you have a lot of characters to set up. So the first episode is you take it apart. It's mechanics. It is a yeah. very mechanical clockwork episode, and it needs to be that to set up. Here's what happened. And then, yes, every episode is going to focus on a different character. Okay. And their are cogs that turn with what happened in Hill House. Mm-hmm. And there are cogs that turn with their life during that summer before something before things go bad. Yeah. And then their the life afterwards. Okay. Uh, and it does get really, really good towards the middle because it does add on. Okay. So we establish episode one and then episode two. And then episode three builds on the first two. And then episode four adds more context mm. to the previous episodes and then the fifth and then the sixth oh, adds, okay. adds on until um minor spoilers but it's been talked about there's one episode where uh cinematically not not really there's no time travel the past and the present overlap and we start to see this event and that event and oh that's how this is echoing and that's this oh, okay. and so it really ties it together uh i will say and again not to spoil too much it does lose steam it does mm. it, it's almost like 
Mike Flanagan was turning in scripts and turning in scripts and turning in scripts and got to episode nine, having turned in episodes, let's say like one through six. And it's like, Oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) But it does, it does wrap up neatly. It does open itself up to possible sequel or prequel ideas. It is worth watching. But episode five, uh, is titled the bent neck lady, uh, is my favorite. Uh, I have never screamed at a television, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Oh, shit. Yeah, was this the jump scare episode? Because there's a jump scare, and I'm using scare quotes uh, for that, um, because it's just uh, something that irks me when mm. I hear nowadays. There's there's one, what I would call, the cinematic cheat jump scare, where it's, bah! and, you know, neurologically, your eyes and your ears react. This one, The Bent Neck Lady, which is my favorite episode, uh, doesn't rely on that, but okay. there might be one. But what it shows how cruel the house is. Oh, good. The house oh. is the abusive partner. The house is the one who's saying this is metaphor. But the house saying, you know, why do you make me hurt you? The house is the one saying you're you're you, you know you're worthless without me. It's, that is how yeah, cruel see what you've done. The house yeah. can get, and it really brings it home in this episode. Interesting. And then the sixth episode. Um, the sixth episode has does yeah now that I think about it, it does have a jump scare but it's totally earned okay okay and there's a second jump scare that's not a jump scare at all that um, if you see it you see it and if you don't you don't there's articles about all, all the hidden ghosts in in Hill House where there might be one like standing and you can barely see it unless you see it there but there's one scene where uh, where the camera is panning and a pantomime panning and we're looking at uh, all the characters in the scene and this five, six, or seven characters in, in this scene, and they're in this large space. And they're panning through, and there's a ghost standing slightly in the back, slightly out of focus, blending into the background. Mm-hmm. And if you notice the ghost is there, if you don't notice the ghost is there, you don't lose anything out of the scene. If you do notice the ghost is there, it adds an extra layer to what's happening in the scene. And because we're panning, and all the other characters are like moving and dynamic and drawing your attention, I'm watching them, who's going to speak? And then I noticed that ghost was standing stock still. I jumped, and that was the most effective jump scare in Hill House because it wasn't. It wasn't bah, in your face, and you're, you're, you're right, your reptile burn turns on. It was, oh, my God, I didn't notice. I'm seeing a witch. I didn't notice right. that this ghost was there. And then when I did notice the ghost was there, the implications of what that meant to the story mm-hmm. added on to it. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to go and revisit all this Carly Jackson stuff, even though it's not yeah. you know, drawing on her work. Some people expected, sadly, for them. I think, though, what I would like to see is, with this some success, they could go back and take the book and make it a prequel season. Because okay. there's nothing nothing in there that would contradict it. I wouldn't mind. We've always looked in the castle to be Because that would be a really nice watch. And after the success of Headful of Ghosts, mm-hmm. Trombley's book, which drew so heavily on it, but okay. not that it was missed by people that are Shirley Jackson fans, but it, for me, it wasn't like shouted from the rooftops quite loud enough mm. that he drew so much from her work. Okay. And considering like Shirley Jackson is well read and they have awards named after her, yeah. and she's no stranger, but there are a lot of people, especially as generations go on, yeah. neglect to read Shirley Jackson yeah. and read the derivation. Yeah. For some reason, feel that they have read some shows. Yeah. I haven't. So. No, yeah, I would freely admit that I know I have not read enough shows. Like, like <laughs> no, it's it, 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 well, that's yeah. but it, I mean, I think it's still pretty common to read the lottery. That's true, Jackson. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's still pretty common in, in school. Okay. Um, and it, besides that, and, and 
hell has for so long ago, I don't remember much about it. I, I can't think of anything else that hers that I've read. Just awful. Yeah. I and, was in that same boat till yeah. I realized that. Yeah, so now I have to go <laughs> and bought a collection. Yeah. I had to. Felt I had to. Yeah, yeah. Don't add to my my reading list, which is about twice as long as my to watch list, but well, you could, you know, be a horror fan and read nothing but Stephen King and have many years of, of very rich reading to do and have read nothing else. Uh, all the things that he touts as yeah. a very, very important influences and what shaped his writing. Mm -hmm. But you are busy reading, yeah. what, 200 books or something. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. You should just stop writing for, like, five years. Or maybe ten. Let us catch up. Yeah, let everybody catch up and, and then do a magnum opus and then that'll probably die because it's, like, I mean, I he's, like, he's getting up there. I feel like Stephen thing. King is catching some shrapnel in this episode. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> it's not shrapnel. Shrapnel he can't catch. Though. Right? He's Stephen King. He's, he's, he's witty. He's great. He's uh, probably superhero. <laughs> More like with bulletproof. This is the band. He's tribe. not bandproof. Yeah. He's mostly bandproof. He's <laughs> it, man. And how much has he been writing since? So, do you not like jump scares? No, I'm just very cranky about them being referred to as such. Um, okay. In reviews and stuff like that. Or people deriding a story because it has a jump scare. Oh, I understand. Okay. And trying to partially in vain achieve a jump scare on paper. Mm. Once again, because apparently that happened, uh, a friend of mine who was, uh, I had lost half of a, a novel and she was rewriting it for me because I found the manuscript and thought, I got excited mm. upon reading it. And uh, well, I need to have this electronically. I need it typed in again, but I want to just keep writing. So I'm yeah, going to pick yeah. up writing from this point. And here, so and so, here's some money. Yeah. And a manuscript, just type it in for me so I can blend the two afterward electronically. Awesome. Um, and she was typing along, typing along, and getting into the story. And it's unraveling in her head as she's typing along. And she's doing like she's a typist, so she can type mm -hmm. fairly quickly. So the story is really kind of clicking along. And there was a point where she was going and going and going and they covered her eyes. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, this eye covering is doing nothing for my imagination. <laughs> but yeah, so I achieved like a something like a yeah. jump scare. That's cool. You know, yeah, in a very petri dish situation, but mm. to achieve that on paper. Yeah. Yeah. There's only one book um people have sewn cash on corners that has that effect on that through the book across the road. Seriously. <laughs> it's um, the story, uh, and it, it's by uh, Tony Burgess who wrote uh, Pontypool Changes Everything. Right. Um, probably his best known work. Uh, and it's a thin little novel, and it's about this guy, Bob Clark, who, for reasons even unknown to him, just starts killing people. They make him uncomfortable. But it isn't, ooh, I'm crazy, or I have no remorse. He's just going through his day, and he's trying to work this out in his head about why things okay. are doing but uh, you begin to root for Bob because, if, especially if you're an introvert and you're uncomfortable around people, you begin to root for him. And it's, it's not fun, but it's engaging. And Tony really knows how to write this style, and there's some uh, horrifically funny elements to it. And his turns of phrase are just wonderful okay. in the story. And there's one, one scene uh, somewhere in the book where he breaks the fourth wall. Oh, really? Where he says something like, you know, I've done this, and da, 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 and, I'm, and I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to sit here. You and me, we're just going to sit here. And what he's done is because you've sided with Bob, and you're following him, and he, he murders a child, and, uh, and, and, he, and he does all of these things, and, 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 he's, and he breaks into a house, and he's not sure why. It's like, what is this going to be? And he does all these horrible, horrible things, and you're following along. 
and then he implicates you. He turns around and says, you're having fun with me, aren't you? Metaphorically speaking. Yeah, yeah. You're having fun with me, aren't you? And just that sudden shock of there's no other fourth wall break in just that one scene um, and, and what Tony did uh, mechanically with, with that implication was just so shocking. I, I chucked the book across. <laughs> oh, my God. And then... That's we, a really profound book. Recovered myself and went, get break, get break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not your fault entirely that you've begun to side with Bob and fully understand him. I had the same thing with uh, Joyce Carol Oates' zombie. And that's ten times worse because it's more of a Jeffrey Dahmer killer oh, okay. person. So it's very hard to relate to somebody like that, especially yeah. some of the things that she wasn't saying in there. But you can't help it when they're going through motions that, and having thoughts that you had and any well-adjusted normal individual mm. on planet Earth has had at least once. So they like they, they, so they've woven that in with this Jeffrey Dahmer person. And Tony does it even more insidiously because you're front and center. You're not being told about what's going on. You're dragged, you're, you're you know, Attached to Bob Backlog, he's yeah. doing these things. It's okay, so besides, like the obvious names, like like Stephen King, Joe Hill, and, and uh, Tony Burns, and whoever, who like who are the A list horror authors now? Like, is it just Stephen King, Joe Hill, and like who? It's so tough with small press. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, but even, I mean, we can include small press in that because, like, I, I know nothing about. We have to because yeah. it's become so. Um, proliferated with Amazon and with book bloggers and YouTube uh, booktubers that talk more about small cracks, thank gosh, but uh, that list has grown. Okay. Right? And it's not all available at Chapters. Oh, it does need to be. I, like, the, when you say the A-list, let's be clear, who are the, the most popular people writing horror these days versus yeah, that, who's yeah. writing the good stuff? Because Either. I would say the most, the most popular people writing horror their publishers are probably not calling it that. Like Andrew Piper's last few books mm-hmm. have been straight up horror. The Dam should be required reading. It is it is mm-hmm. a freaky, great, rollicking, horrific, disturbing right. story. But he's you know Canada's you know premier thriller writer. Oh, we don't yeah. use the H word anymore. Um, and why uh, is that? Because horror had its heyday in the eighties and nineties with Stephen King. With uh, mass market paperbacks, you could do cheap, 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 cheap. Yeah. There's, there's a, a publisher called Leisure Books that that did all kinds of stuff. And um, when did Cheesy.com fold? I just started with them with with CZP. It's probably ten years ago. Yeah, Leisure Books yeah, just the publishers they they, they just they did their ten year anniversary. Right? They collapsed. Okay. Uh, Leisure Books did. Yeah. Oh, so probably books. around uh, 2011. 2012, that big class. I remember a lot of authors were looking to uh, get money yep. out of them, and uh, they were there was rumors of the collapse. Then Don Dor- Doria <laughs> split, and that was right after the Cherascuro Leisure Books contest that I had entered with Nightface, and another author from Australia had entered at the same time. He won with his book, The Lost Boys, and. That is just seeing a release now, basically, yeah. thanks to that whole leisure, the leisure handling of that book. But, right, okay. Yeah. Because it, was it wasn't just they went out of business. It was, it was I'm not going to, I don't know the, the ins and outs of it, but it was a, a huge calamity. Gotcha. And because leisure was huge, like they did all kinds of stuff. Mm. But I think between horror collapsing, uh, when you had Stephen King and McCamon and Koontz and, and John mm. Saul, um, I think Bentley Little came up. Yeah. Just started right around when horror was the thing. Okay, and then 
Tom Clancy comes along, it's uh, techno thrillers, and then uh, you know, Harry Potter comes along, right. and so it's what the big names are. So yeah, and and, and who publishers are going to throw their their money right. behind? Uh, like I had a friend who worked at a bookstore, and he told me, "You want to sell fifty copies of this book? Put two hundred of them on the wall." Oh wow! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so you want to sell hundred? You put three hundred, and so it's yeah, we're not going to sell them all, but we want you to walk in the store, see this huge wall of books, and think, "Oh, this must be pretty good." It's the There's a whole yeah. bunch of them. Yeah. And so you grab one, then you get whatever it is. Yeah, right, right, okay. So, you know, the people who are writing horror right now who are big, I mean, King isn't even writing horror anymore. He's writing more like crime thrillers. It's oh, okay. I haven't read Stephen. The last Stephen King I read um, chronologically, or his latest one, I think is Cell. That oh, was wow. 2006. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, because I've read his latest stuff either. Like, I'm thinking of, like, maybe when I say illustrators, like, because, like, what are the big horror cons? Like, you have Nikon, which I know... Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I'm thinking, like, like I look at CanCon, and it's mostly sci-fi and fantasy writing. Yeah. And I, like, something like, like, when you go to a con like that, who are the, you know, the authors where it's like, oh, that's, you know, freaking so-and-so, right? Like, that's kind that's of what... That's a lot of John Taft and yeah. Brian Keene is still yeah. huge. Okay. Like, huge, huge, huge. And He's on fire right now. Yeah, yeah, he truly is. He truly was. He even has fake skin to show for it now. Oh, yeah. okay. He's yeah. yeah. Fire. <laughs> he, yeah he literally was. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I, I got that after a moment. Okay. Like, oh, Christ. <laughs> um, Paul Tremblay. Uh, he he was a crime writer. Like I think his first two books were were crime stories. Okay. Where Larry Barron started yeah. out with that uh, sort of um, Lovecraftian mm. sort of horror, that existentialist horror. Yeah. Craig Davidson, uh, and I'm naming people I know, which is kind of shitty. But yeah, I mean that's chicken and Yeah, I mean that's part of the world. Right? Craig Davidson uh, writes under the under the pen name on Nick Cutter. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, he has that. three books out, and uh, I've read them all. They're all really, really good. But okay. the, the first one that came out a couple of years ago, yes, uh, well, Nick uh, the truth is just yeah. Top, oh yeah, top top notch. And something I need to go back and reread because his character development. And it's it's straight ahead unabashed horror. Yeah, but his character development is exquisite. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I think that he would be the number one to carry on the mantle of old fashioned nineteen eighties style Stephen King horror. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, he does. Uh, Gemma Files and Michael Rowe are going to say, "Toronto and choosing." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, uh, yeah, real yours is. Um, I hadn't. I haven't I, read Halcyon or Lost Girl, but. Uh, I really like Point Hollow. Yeah, Point Hollow is excellent. Yeah, yeah. For those who can't see it, Matt's pointing at the stack of books that I, I set up before we got here uh, with what little I have horror wise. Um, yeah, no, yeah, Rio. Yeah, Point Hollow is the only one by Rio that I've read. But it is. Uh, Peter Straub is still writing. Okay, I think he slowed down a little bit, but uh, so there's still a ton of people. Basically, I, just, I don't hear about it because I'm not. I'm not. I'm, what's it's? We're not mired in the world. What's not like this? I'm looking at the strain is at the bottom of of um of the stack here. Yeah, and you know, but it's Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, del Toro. And if it wasn't, this book might not be here. Right. And so they would probably publish this, and they probably already had the, the film or TV rights, I forget what, what it was, uh, already locked up before he probably started writing. Oh, I don't know, but I'd make that supposition because yeah, yeah. he's Del Toro. Yeah, no kidding. I am the biggest fan of the This Is Horror podcast. There's not a lot of literary horror podcasts out there. It's a small little <laughs> community, right? But okay. that is the number one and only real podcast that I can think of that interviews authors, talks about books, and only, like, stays on literary horror. Oh, okay, well, interesting. Not just literary horror, all genre. Right. But, yeah, and okay. that talks about books, and you can get that who's who really easily by just looking at the last ten interviews. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's a really, really good Evan, are you writing this down? Because I... 
We're recording it, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. We're recording this. I'm good. <laughs> I feel like that's a detail you should have remembered if anyone... You would think that. Yeah. He's the organized one. Oh, God. <laughs> Aren't you? I mean, if that's my role, we have we have trouble. Okay, that's uh, fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's okay, fine. cool. This is horrible. Okay, sweet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How have you been reading lately? Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm such a slow reader right now. I'm reading Shades Within Us from uh, Laxa Media. Oh, yeah. Genre anthology about um, migration. Oh, fun. But, but I've got, um, uh, I just finished John Taft's book, mm-hmm. um, The End and All Beginnings, which is mm-hmm. uh, four or five novellas, which I really like. And I, I actually had the opportunity to meet him at, at Nikon. Oh, mm. fun. Just, it, it's funny because I, I picked that up. It had been recommended in a number of places, so I picked it up. So I'm reading it on the plane, um, fly down to Nikon, uh, drive from Boston, which is a hellish two and a half hours, just because it's rush hour. My yeah. flight got in at like 445 like, oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> Boston yeah. traffic is just nuts. So I rent my car, and I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm listening to podcasts. And so I get in, I go check in, uh, meet my, my roommate, because Nikon is you get a roommate. And as I'm walking down the hall, John Foster, who I had met at ReaderCon five years earlier, and he and my wife are Facebook friends, and they talk about dogs, <laughs> is, is coming just out of this hotel room. He's like, man, like, John, oh, how are you? Like, oh, yeah. And it's like, this is this is my buddy John, and didn't know what Sean Taft about. Oh, okay. I just ruined the story. <laughs> my, my other friend John Winkle man I'm like oh hey nice to meet you blah, blah, blah. I know you're a writer yeah I'm a writer blah, blah, blah. so we're going and we, we, we kind of this group we're going out to dinner and so I've probably been in John's presence for maybe half an hour and somebody mm. was like Mr. Taft how are you I'm like you're John Taft this is he that's like I just picked up the book yeah so serendipity nice but uh so that that's my story about that um but because I, I did work for Cheesy and like I can I can get their books for free so and also mm. I'm a super slow reader but um, I've been reading a lot of uh, anthologies of late, just because friends have work in them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, had, I've read a lot of novels of late. I think the last novel I did read was Andrew Piper's uh, The Only Child. Okay. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? Oh, that was wonderful. I had a pre-release of that, so I felt nice um, awkward having read it beforehand. I did do a review of it, but I wanted to like lend it to everybody. Oh, was yeah. That good? Yeah, I really like his work. I just read that. Demofiles experimental film that yes. I'm late to the game on that one compared mm. to everyone else because that hit big yeah. the way Bird Box hit big so it's been on my list for a very long very very long time and coincidentally you know the, the story of the experimental film then Matt uh, but right before the third act I was hit by this unbelievable migraine where mm. I couldn't string words together couldn't stand straight was vomiting and mm. I don't usually get nausea too bad when I get migraines but it was like particularly yeah. bad and at the same time, I years ago inherited 20 rolls of 8mm film, and I was sending them off mm. to get done. So I was back and forth with this guy talking about this, these old films, and I had I had to undo the box. So I got that horrible vinegar yeah. smell because yeah. they're starting to go. And, yeah, so it was just a perfect time to read experimental films. <laughs> yeah. Matt, since like, you straddle sci-fi and horror in the interview writing, so mm. do you, which do you find you read more of or do you usually read balance? I generally read more horror than science fiction, okay. and uh, I, I say I read science fiction horror uh, because it's just an easy way. But I think if if you dug down into the work my work that is science fiction, and you wanted to be academic about it, the way Sean Morland right. wanted to be, most of my work is horror. Okay. If you wanted to get down to the and there's many ways to look at it, but the lens I look at it is that science fiction is a way of looking at um, a person's or humanity's. Uh, relationship with uh, society. Okay. So living living a better life. Uh, and the idea that 
in in a lot of science fiction you have two competing worlds. You know, you look at mm. you look at and I'm going to use film. You know, you look at uh, the Matrix. Okay. Well, you have the Matrix and you have the real world. Yeah. You look at let's say Terminator. You have the future where the Terminators come from, or the future without the Terminators. You look at Wrath of Khan. You okay. have these two captains, Khan and Kirk, who are who are competing. Yeah. So that's science fiction, but and that's. You know, we can argue this forever. That's just generally to look at it. Okay. I've never actually heard that way of looking at science. Which is horror, uh, you know, Blade Runner, versus horror, which for me is a human's relationship with humanity or to be humane or to be human. And so uh, something I like to play with, a favorite theme of mine that you can read in my short story collection, it's not the end in other lives. (laughs) Plug it. Plug it right now. Is that the humane and the monstrous are not two ends of a spectrum. They're mm. three independent lines. What am I thinking of? Scales. There you go. Pretend edit that part out. Sure. The monstrous and the humane are two independent scales. Then where do you fall on each? And can you lose your humanity in trying to fight the monstrous? And so for me, that's how horror... Now, that's just for me how horror works. So a lot of, a lot of my work... Because I do read science fiction, and it's... Wow, it's a really interesting way to look at, you know, a, 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 a quantum singularity of a star, you know, sure. plus into whatever... Uh, but it really didn't make me consider my moral, moralistic beliefs. Oh, okay. Because I like a book that is, uh, that's meditating on theme, that's trying to say something. So Paul Trombley's Handful of Ghosts, which is, to summarize it, it's told from the point of view of a younger sister whose older sister went through an exorcism that is full-on acknowledging the book in the movie Exorcist exists. It's not like, we're going to pretend that didn't happen, we're just going to... It's like it full-on exists, and uh, I think for financial reasons, the father allows a film crew to come in and document the experience. Yeah. And you go, and it's and it's compelling, and it draws you in, and bad things, of, offensive things happen. Okay. And there's doubt of, is it or is it not supernatural, but mm. it's not really wrapped up well, uh, and then it leaves you with this bitter taste in your mouth of, People can be mean, bitter little shits. And I think that's the takeaway. I mean, it's the, the A story, the top level of the story, is, is fabulous yeah. and, and horrific and engaging and really good characters. But if you scratch the surface and want to drill down a little bit, there is that, that workings there, that questioning of the monstrous and the humane mm-hmm. and what wins uh, and how the story unfolds. And you're asking yourself, like, what does that say about me? And I find in science fiction, science fiction is asking different questions. I'm not saying it's it's not any less intelligent. Right. For it's, sure. it's asking questions that don't quite resonate. Now, some of them, some do. Yeah. Uh, but I, I tend to find that uh, horror is, I lean more in that direction. Now, there's, there's, there's terrible horror that is just blood and guts. Right. Um, or wonderful from my point of view. Okay, go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mention Lydia's book, Night Face, not, not the... Not the I'm not getting paid for this. We'll just keep plugging. It's a vampire novel, and, and the, the, the graphic violence in it is, is very affecting and, and, and very gruesome. But ultimately, it's a book about family. It's a book about family and family dysfunction, and I love that. If you don't want to look at it at that level, it's a great, original, like nasty, nasty vampire story Okay, with some really original uh, like um, bonsai equipment used and really make you travel with. But below, it's about family. It's about the, the relationships that we have that are less than perfect. Okay. Uh, we have with, with people we, we treat the same way. 
That's what I like the most about the horror genre is that it can really encompass so many things. If somebody's a comedy fan, they can be a comedy horror fan because you can find those. And Shock you can be, yeah, it, totally. And Or Evil Dead 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, just yeah. watching Ash vs. Evil Dead uh, yeah. series of yeah. the show. Um, no. It, it is, and it's so fun. And yeah. I'm not a comedy fan whatsoever. Like, if I walk into a room and they're watching like a stand-up comic, I cringe. Okay. The same sort of reaction somebody would have when they walk in if they're a country music fan into somebody listening to death metal mm. or somebody who's not a horror fan seeing horror on the screen and yeah. go cringe. I have that same reaction okay. to comedy, but comedy horror is great. Um, crime bores the hell out of me. Mm. But if it's horror crime, I'm in there. If it's gory, that's wonderful. Like Or CSI, if it's okay. over that gallows humor, a lot of that, yeah. you know, I can handle that. So romance, sort of, maybe gothics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's there's well like inject romance into mm-hmm. into horror that I really appreciate. So it does it can like really encompass any genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can find it in other genres if you look hard enough. Yeah. You're gonna have to because the whole like mm-hmm. Matt was talking about earlier how like thirty years ago there was Dorchester lining all the shelves yep. in every bookstore. Mm-hmm. There were horror sections, and there's a lot of bookstores that don't even have horror sections anymore. Yeah. You go to general fiction to find your Stephen King. Yeah. You go elsewhere into science fiction or crime to find mm-hmm. your other thrillers for your Andrew Piper. Yep. So you have to kind of look around for it. And I'm used to that because mm-hmm. I would go to other genres looking for the horror. Okay. But I do really appreciate a really good splatterpunk if it's written with story mm-hmm. as well. That's where um, uh, Richard Lehman would be, he's long dead now, but he had many, many books that were very pulpy, very one note, very gory, mm. but very, um, like the Sweet Valley High up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very gory, very, very bubblegum. Okay. Yeah, very untoward, but they weren't very touching, so you could just rip through them very pulpy. Very Harlequin romance, mm. horror, oh, okay. spotter horror anyway. Yeah, yeah. But then you get into something that's even worse. Like Edward Lee writes some very rich but extremely gory stuff. But he's got elements of darkness, existentialism. It's great. But it is not just... Jack Ketchum. Oh, Jack Ketchum. Where that's like... That's almost like if someone's a true crime fan, read Jack Ketchum. It might be fiction, but it's worse than true crime. And that's where I find a lot of my horror crosses into um, other genres as true crime in a huge way. Okay. But there's so many people who would who would scream at me because they don't think true crime and horror have anything to do with one another because true crime is horrible and mm. horror is fun. <laughs> Interesting. True crime is appalling. I, like Brian King well, yeah, got very upset with somebody using a true crime photo as a profile picture on Facebook. And he had a very, very succinct rant about it. Very agreeable rant mm. about it. How those two things shall not meet. Right. But unfortunately, I think that they must and do often. And yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because then, I mean, some of our inspiration can come from stuff that's happened in the real world. Like the horrific things that occur. Well, what Jack Ketchum had to say about what Brian Keane had to say. Right. Because right. Uh, Dallas wrote almost basically true crime stories. There wasn't really a supernatural element to a lot of what he had to write. Dallas is Jack Ketchum's real name. Oh, okay. Dallas Meyer. Meyer. Okay. So Jack Ketchum's stuff, the only thing he wrote was near the end of his life, he wrote I'm Not Sam, and that has a a quasi-supernatural bent to it, but it's very much in the vein of that very bleak, very Mm. sad, very 
real, very touching, mm-hmm. very human mm-hmm. horror that he wrote. Okay, cool. Or the blocks, I guess, that that's very, that's somewhat supernatural. It was done in the female director um, anthology XX, horror anthology. It's, okay. Uh, recently on Netflix, but it had done this. this oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 That adapted by a Torontonian ex memoir of Lavanka Yukovic. Camping <laughs> <laughs> Toronto horror. We all bands up. Well, we talked about Ottawa, but we could talk about Toronto. Yeah, well, it's all good. I don't think I think it's important though to to talk about the dis- the distinction between I'll say American, but what it really means is Hollywood like mass produced, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I'd have to believe that there is a an element in the United States, and and it could just be regional because it is so much bigger than Canada. But when you look at what Hollywood is doing, and I'll use Hollywood to include mass like New York and mass market, yeah. And what Canada is doing, which even though like Cheesy and other publishers are are, are getting bigger. There is a very different flavor, I would say, to what's happening in Canada right now in terms of horror as a, you know, to Lydia's point, as a broad genre. Okay. That uh, the the and the literary element to it, and also the difference between what's happening in short fiction, which with with Laird, with um, Simon Stranson's, um, are, are two are two coming up. Uh, Ian Rogers mm. is, is doing some stuff where horror is really playing with different tropes and elements and uh, um, you know some of Ian's stories are almost in a straight line okay but yeah kind of bizarre in that we, we veer off plot into something else but it's still as fulfilling yeah 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 uh, and so short fiction and, and, and I think this is one of the advantages of horror is you can tell really effective stories in a few words. You know, yeah. fantasy, fantasy uh, and, and again, we're talking center of bell curves and, and yeah, fantasy, over. because it's fantasy, we have to move you out of our world into that world. Mm-hmm. And that takes words. Yeah. And then we have to tell the story. Yeah. Versus horror, which can just be, we're on a city street corner and the buses are going by at, at 1230 in the morning and splashing you with, with rainwater. Okay. Yeah. Right here. Uh, and but so you know things like what Gemma Files is doing and Michael Rowe is doing and and, uh, and Andrew Piper mm-hmm. and um, even though Paul Trombley is, is American like I think he's more in that vein uh, is doing one thing with very literary but still horror and short fiction is going in a very experimental way in, in Canada. Okay, at least that's that's what I'm saying. That's what. <laughs> well, I, mean, what I trust you. Oh no, it's very very true. I remember years and years ago the first time I remember reading a mention of Canada whatsoever was British Columbia area yeah. in a Clyde Barker book of all things. Oh, really? And I was like, yay, Canada! <laughs> and now with the huge success of Small Presses, the really like way larger short fiction market, like mm. way, way larger mm-hmm. short fiction market, and that Canadian authors don't have to either go passing as American passing as UK authors that they can really find voices. We don't have to like paint everything as New York or, or right. Boston or, or San Francisco for people to understand what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. We can just use our settings. Right. right? And we're allowed to do that now. Um, I find that that really lends to it because there is a whole other voice, sort of like there's a voice in a different metal from different places. Mm-hmm. Sing and write about where you're from and you let the place you're from influence you don't want to yeah. sound like and you can't sound like a band from somewhere else. 
I think that's what you discover. We can't sound like authors from other places. Mm-hmm. So we might as well just yeah. write what we know. Yeah, that absolutely. Stand by. Yeah. Tony Burgess has been doing that. Like Pontypool is yeah. is a town. Um, Caesarea is, mm-hmm. is a town. About hounds of pretending what it was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he was pick it up later. We'll, we'll splice Cash it in. Cash on Cash on so he's been writing about um, rural Ontario as as you know worse than Stephen King's Maine. Mm. You know, for for a while now, didn't have to didn't have to dress it up. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, experimental films is set unabashedly in Toronto and north and parts of northern Ontario. Yeah. Um, Michael Rose books are set in in, in Canada, yeah. which is very creepy. I find northern Ontario has a lot of parallels with Pennsylvania. Okay. And we have as many like secret horror authors sort of yes. in the wild <laughs> writing about these places. <laughs> like, like, like they're hiding. <laughs> sort of like Pennsylvania is crazy that way. I wow. find. You'll discover a new horror author that's not Canadian, and they're from Pennsylvania. It's wild. Interesting. Any names you want to name? Yeah. Oh, um, Blair Baron settled just upstate New York, I believe, so we'll call that Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, Paul Michael Anderson, who's edited a couple of things for Postmortem, is done on, is from, I don't know if he's from, but I know he's in Pennsylvania right now. Because I tried to mail him a copy of my book and it got lost. It wound up in the dead letter office. Oh lord! Somewhere in Georgia, maybe, and we couldn't find it. Oh wow! I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that wrote Tom Kelsing. He's uh, really gotten a lot of attention with his last book. The, the title I can't remember right now. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania as well. So what I'm hearing is we need to destroy Pennsylvania. Yep. Listening to the Brian Keene, the horror show with Brian Keene. He has most of the people that he has in his studio are from PA, if they're not passing through or if he's not at a convention, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, all them guys. <laughs> cool. So we have to go to war with them. That's what. I'm... Yes, immediate invasion. Okay, done. Perfect. Okay, cool. But only the horror authors, like the science fiction authors in Pennsylvania, are fine. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, we'll be very cool. selective target. Good. Yeah. Are good. there yeah. any? <laughs> <laughs> we just show up, just, you know, hold a meeting, and nobody shows up. You built the wrong wall at the wrong border, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, cool. I want to ask you one other thing, mm. um, only because I, I was uh, researching a little bit online, um, and on uh, one of the pod, one of the podcasts that you're on, and I'm blanking on the name of it now. You're talking about dead Cap- air, maybe? dead air. Thank yeah. you. Yes, on dead air. You were talking about Cabin in the Woods. Ah, yeah, yeah. Which I absolutely adore. Is it on your favorites list? Is it on? Not so much. Like, what, cause I, That's cause I, annoying. I just, I, it's okay. annoying, yeah. Um, we had chosen that one because there was usually like a thread in between films. We have a huge list of films we want to get to. Mm. And whatever we got to last or want to get to next usually dictates somehow this thread that we're you know, trying to connect films just loosely and vaguely. Right. Like we're going from Dark Skies to The Thing yeah. to Silent Night, Deadly Night because it's aliens to winter... Basically. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, because I saw Dark Skies and then they got a little alien abduction kick. Yeah. Which is cool. A little bit, yeah. After And, and Dark Skies came after um, Fire in the Sky. Right. Which, yeah, isn't even really horror, but whatever. Uh, Cabin in the Woods, that one my podcast partner was not a big fan of. Oh, okay. My husband is a very big fan of. Okay. So it was, I'm sort of in the middle of all that. You know, I'm, I like the movie very, very much. Mm. I think it's extremely fun. Mm. I always wish that it was like a choose-your-own-adventure, though, because oh. when they go downstairs and they see all of these things that could trigger yeah, yeah, all yeah. these horrors that we get to meet later on, I just wish that I, I want to see the one where 
they undo the puzzle box and get to yeah. fornic- the fornicator or whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or I want them to open the ballerina box and you can meet that mm-hmm. tooth-faced ballerina mm-hmm. girl. That's where I think that comes from. We'll lock it. We can, yeah. you know, how do we hook up with the other the other Hannibal zombies, right? Yeah. Like, not the hillbilly ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So I like that aspect of it. It is super fun. And it is, like, really eye candy for horror mm-hmm. fans. Um, and it is, like, just so... It is derivative and it is very campy. Oh, yeah. Some of the writing is just, oh, so witty. And <laughs> I, it, I don't have a lot of patience for that. Yeah. But it is super enjoyable and yeah. it's produced very well and it's written fairly tightly mm-hmm. and it's fun. And I had a lot of fun with that sort of blend of mm-hmm. science fiction and horror when we first are introduced to the fact that they're under some sort of dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I love that because yeah. I had no idea going into the film that that's what was going to the way either. it was going to go. Yeah, just that sudden twist. It is, to me, it was just it was a fun ride. Like, I went into it not expecting... No, and we really, like, all... Between myself and my podcast partner, who's sort of come around on the phone... Okay. And I I, I, I like it. Like, I've always liked it. I went and saw it in theater, even though I, at first, people were like, oh, Lydia, have you seen Cabin in the Woods? It's a great horror. It's so funny. And I was like, well, you do know me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see a funny horror movie. Um, but then once I understood what, what they were doing, get excited to go see it um but if somebody had was not really into horror it's a pretty good stepping off point like why introduce somebody to what your you know interpretation of good horror is be it books or tv like if you if i want to introduce somebody to um books and horror and they say oh give me a horror novel i'm not going to throw the genital grinder as much as i like that book it's not for everybody or you give somebody some Shirley Jackson. They might right. fall asleep if that's not their thing. Right. Uh, films, you know, we watch um, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. Somebody that They might not be into that. Mm-hmm. Or you try and introduce them to, you know, I don't know, The Raid, even though that's mm-hmm. not really horror. It's extremely gory. Mm-hmm. But that would could turn somebody off. I think you're pretty safe with Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's fun. It's gory. It's it's yeah. spooky and it's some really genuinely uh, tense and Hitchcockian moments mm. in such a, a silly little movie like I hate saying a silly little movie because that sounds really harsh but I think it's true. some <laughs> points it's a silly little movie some points yeah. it's extremely serious very dark and what I like about Cabin in the Woods as an introduction is if you don't get the billion references in there, it's yeah, okay. It's not I, essential yeah. to the plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you need the, the pinhead ripoff and the, the, yeah. the twins from The Shining ripoff. And, yeah. You know, the, this and that and the whole thing. Just sitting listening to, to you two talk, I mean, this, this this seems to happen every time I listen to people who are super into horror talk about, about horror. It's like a lot of times I think in the popular consciousness, horror is this, it's this niche, right, that doesn't even have its own section in the bookstore because it's so niche. But as soon as people who really love it start talking about it, it's this huge field. <laughs> it includes all kinds of stuff, right? Like, it's funny. It can be gory or not gory. It can be, and, you know, you can find it everywhere. I mean, and so it's weird to me that it, it inhabits both of those spaces, right? Like, it includes world, all of this stuff. The term literary horror was used, and I think most horror should be literary because we don't have magic systems in ancient cities to draw upon, for, for the most part. We don't have like big spaceships and big worlds. It's it's got to be. You've got to start with the human mm-hmm. element mm-hmm. in order for horror to be effective. And I brought Derek. Well, I, no, I think it was David Nichol 
brought Derek around to the idea that of all the genres, including detective, including romance, horror is the most literary. Because where do you find Shirley Jackson? In literature, oh, yeah. in, in high school and, and college curriculums. Where do you find Poe? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Turn of the Screw. Yeah. You know, where do you find... That's all... Oh, well, that's well, that's, that's not horror. Yeah. That's literature. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> it can be both. And, yeah. you know, Brave New World and Animal Farm and, you know, those things are, are great literature and, and science fiction. Yeah, genre. absolutely. But I think horror does lend itself to... Two different elements. So when you're, Evan, you're talking about that narrow thing, I think that's you know, a very specific branch of horror that is unmistakably anything else. Just because it's it's vampires or it's it's monsters or it's or it's poorly written serial killers. <laughs> but as you do branch out into into other areas, it's easy to, to place horror in other other uh, sections of the bookstore. Do you think horror functions better as a subgenre than as a genre? I wish that it was a genre again, but then I have that mm. same problem where someone will have a clearly labeled horror in yeah. a horror section, and I read it and go, "That's horror! What right. the hell was horror about that?" Because um, it is so subjective. Yeah. But it is so broad that it demands a genre of its own. I think it gets into the, you know, science fiction fans seen horror. The the old argument those those were invented by bookstore owners just so that they could. Right. They could put the spaceships here and the vampires there. And the, you know, the magic. Well, yeah, that's the, like yeah. My definition of horror, yeah, is it, it's it's monsters or it's ghosts or it's serial killers, and that's yeah, and I know that's limiting and incorrect, but that's how I separate them in my head. Sandra Castori, who who's the the publisher of um of Cheesian Publications, says for her there has to be a supernatural element, otherwise it's not horror. So for her, Silence of the Lambs is not horror. Or for her, The Girl Next Door isn't horror. Yeah. yeah. But for me. My interpretation is more that that examination. Like if you're just writing uh, straight ahead, um, like some, some of the later Saw films that I can't get through. You know, mm-hmm. for me, that's not that's that falls out of horror and more into action or more into mm-hmm. just you know, like I I can't watch Eli Roth's films like I did. Right. It's, it, there's 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 not a lot there for me because it's it's disgusting. Right. And it, and it might be revolting, but is it? horrifying. Now Stephen King says, mm. I try to scare if I can't scare, I'll terrify if I can't. No, I'll try to terrify if I can't terrify, and I horrify if I can't horrify, I go for the gross out. One of them's going to work. Yeah. 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 And so that's what I'm looking for for me is, am I, you know, if you can scare me, that's hard to do. Right. But if you can scare me, bravo. But if you can horrify me, whether it's queasiness or that, like I, I used the, the word, dread. that offensive word before, the, the dread or that offensive that it's more it's morally offensive. And I'm not saying I'm a moral person and I'm better than everybody else, but just we all have our own internal compass and can you spin my compass? Can you do what Tony Burgess did with Cash Town mm-hmm. and and point me in a direction I wouldn't normally go? For me that's good horror. Okay. And and uh, Cash Town may or may not have some supernatural elements to it, depending upon how you read the later chapters. It definitely hits into the gross. Mm-hmm. Definitely oh, yeah. hits into the gross. Yeah. Especially having read it very closely yeah. so many times. Yeah. Um, I, the horror is defined by so many other authors as, a, as an emotion, and I really uh-huh. agree with that, where that's where I think you can, that's why you can find it in so many other genres and why it is so personal because what is going to offend somebody or not and mm. what you can consider horror. You can be super broad, and I love to be super broad with it because 
that's my prerogative as a horror author to use, yeah. you know, apply the horror labels as many things as I can, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm reading The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things by J.T. Leroy, and okay. it is offensive, mm. deeply offensive, even to somebody who has, uh, what is that word that people like to use? Um, when you've desensitized yourself oh, yeah. to such an extreme degree as I have, not just by nature growing up in this society, but on purpose. Mm. Um, it is morally offensive in so many ways, no matter who you are. And it almost belongs in horror because it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Like watching the news can be sometimes horrifying. Yeah. The school shootings thing, that's, that's fucking horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, does J.T. Leroy's work, school shootings, belong in the horror genre? I don't know, but right. it does fit yeah. under that emotion. Is it harder to, to horrify audiences today, do you think? Because like, I think about the stuff that we could experience when I was when I was a kid growing up and like even the Friday the 13th movies mm. you know we had to like illicitly grab those and watch them you know <laughs> when the parents weren't around because you know you could get them from the video store but you had to show ID and stuff like that right and now like all of that stuff you can just watch it on on online and there's no, none of those controls and anything about video games like the you know the level of graphic content and those is far higher than when you were blowing up Mm-hmm. Space Invaders. I mean, has that raised the bar for horror horror writers? Do you think, or if you can tell the story in a way that touches people, no. Yeah. If you're relying on some tricks, <laughs> parlor tricks, perhaps. Okay. But yeah, you can read some pretty light fare mm-hmm. and still feel those emotions when it's effective. That's why Hitchcock's films are still effective today because he's not just pulling tricks out of the bag. He's actually a master at creating that suspense, right? If you're a master at creating, eliciting that emotion, that dread, if that's what you're going for, um, you could do it very gently. I think, I mean, there's, there's, you mentioned film with yeah. Friday the 13th. I'll yeah. that in a second. And, and then there's, there's writing. And I think the writing is, if it's done well, it's going to be universal. So something I've been thinking about is we've been talking about is Rebecca by Daphne Du Maurier. Which yeah, that's on my list. I picked up a nice little hard copy last time I was in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I like Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, and I read that in high school, but I remember loving it because it was one of the best horror stories I I read. And the idea is, oh, there's you know, is the husband still in love with his dead ex-wife, and you know, does he really love his new wife? And you know, is is that what was that? taboo and shocking then is it taboo and shocking now well maybe it's not taboo and shocking now but it's still an effective story uh stephen king wrote one of his first bachman books was rage Mm -hmm. which is about uh a kid who takes over a class with a gun okay and so it was before school shootings were a thing which is very hard to find and uh it it is about a kid who takes now at the time i'm sure it was shocking right and i'd like to go back and read it again and i would bet you it is still shocking, not because, oh, my God, a kid with a gun in a school will kind of desensitize to that, but it's it's the human element. So if it's we're going to do like a live-action film in the 40s or we're going to do like a mockumentary of, oh, my God, that's a school shooting going on, blah, blah, this is so perfect, that might shock people because, oh, my God, like a 14-year-old brought a gun in Today, it would be like, no. But um, I think the writing, because writing is about what happens within people, I think if it's done well, it's going to be, we're still reading Poe. Yeah. We're still reading Shakespeare. Yeah. And, that's good. Ooh, like these 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 two teenagers are, are in love and they're gonna fuck oh isn't isn't that scandalous? <laughs> it wasn't scandalous then. And it's not scandalous now, but it's well written. Yeah. Uh, but with film though, I do think that there is a challenge because 
the technology has improved to put gore on screen. Yeah. So we do become desensitized to that. We're showing more of that um, on, on the news. But I, I was talking to uh, um, someone uh, who is probably going to listen to this, so I, I apologize to him. I'm not going to name him in case he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> but he's, I'd say he's maybe 10 to 15 years younger than, than me. And he'd watch Jaws for the first time. Now, for me, Jaws is an almost perfect film mm. because it is—it's excellent horror. It sets—it attacks Chief Brody, and so and I use it in a, in a course I teach about um, uh, conflict and, and um, tension because mm. Brody is attacked on uh, just about every level, uh, and I use Maslow's pyramid for the, for those levels. Oh, cool! Uh, and he's like, growing up, you know, a generation or half generation after me, like, the movie is boring. Like we, we should see the shark like in the first scene, like under the water with the thing. And I'm saying, doesn't it make it scarier? That you don't see, and it's like well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of what the water. I'm like exactly. He says, "Well, I wasn't." It's like shit. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, see, it, as a child, like I grew up with Jaws. Like some people that are huge fans, not a fan. Never found it scary. Found it very boring all of my life. Not afraid of the water, and just I, I found it very boring. And it's like a nature film. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like it's not horror to me, but I totally accept and understand that it's very horrific to many people, but. For some reason, it just did not hit those buttons with me at all. And I tried. I tried hard. Just like I tried to like Suspiria. I tried over and over. <laughs> I keep watching this damn thing, but it's just not, you know, it's an interesting film. What I like about Jaws, though, as an adult, is it is, it is more about what's horrific is how it breaks Cooper down. Like, Cooper, at the end of the film, is an animal. He's got nothing left. Mm. He's tried to outsmart the shark. He's tried to outsmart the townsfolks. Or maybe not outsmart, but, you know. And, and that's what breaks it now. But I, I think today we're so used to video games and jump scares and everything. And the, the effects are... The reason we didn't see the shark was, was not a storytelling choice. It was a technological right thing. Mm -hmm. It just happened to work uh, for, for some people. <laughs> but, you know, Alien. Alien is yeah. the same thing. The yes. reason we don't yeah. see the alien because the fucking costume looked ridiculous. Yeah. With the guy trying to... I mean, here's my alien walk. You... You look so like much more effective though with that silhouette and a little bit of the silhouette, oh, yeah. you know, that's all I needed and that works, mm. you know, via V mm. Jaws it didn't. Uh, for whatever reason, mm. that's just how I'm wired, right? And that's one of the classic examples that I've seen used to like talk about the difference between horror and science fiction is like Alien is a horror movie and then Aliens is science fiction. Yeah. And yeah, Alien, yeah, they, it's the same creature but it's so much scarier because you don't see it until almost right at the end you hear it or you see part of it or yeah yeah and, uh, that is that is a classic example of, of you know, taking an idea and you had to turn it up to 11 like i mean it, yeah. it is a great example of we can't make the same movie again mm. uh and so cameron and cameron you know he's a genius up until i'd say true lies i think he kind of lost me in true lies oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> that's probably fair but see i mean like i always wonder about like the way that all of our genres evolve because, like, I look at science fiction and, and, like, you know, the next steps for science fiction is imagining, you know, different technologies and, and different outlooks on, like, uh, as, as the world changes around us and, and fantasy has its evolution. And I keep wondering, like, what is, like, what, what is the evolution of horror? Is it just stuff that's gorier or is it just, how do you do something that's new and, and evolve the genre without just doing the same thing over and over again? Do you, like, mm -hmm. you understand what I mean? Like, and, and I, I, again, because I don't write horror, I have no conception in my head of what that would be. And you just keep trying to end things. Can't do any more AI horror. I'm mm -hmm. done. Can't do, apparently, now horror. I wonder if romance wouldn't be the biggest genre. Right. right? Well, that's because that. nothing really changes there. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. So, maybe, so, okay, so am I coming at this from the wrong angle? That maybe, like, 
that nothing needs to change. You just, you just need to keep having people that are doing it really, really well. And changes with every voice that tells the same story. Yeah, okay. we could tell the same story over and over. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I like um, old, old Irish ghost stories because okay. it's always like, you know, going down the road and you pick up the hitchhiker and then the hitchhiker says, you pull into this house and you pull into that house and it's burnt down. You turn on the hitchhiker's gone. You know, there's 7,000 iterations of that right, sort yeah. of story in, in these old folk tales. And each one is gold to me. Right, okay. And especially when it's the right teller, too. Yeah, right. Hear it. In okay. the right context, and that just that right version that does it for you, right? Yeah. So um, the stories will change a little bit. I find horror is getting a little more introspective, a mm, little yes. more personal, and we're finding ways to push buttons. Probably because there is, uh, aside from the internet being so great for research mm. and stuff, it's really great communication tool, and people open up a lot more about what scares them, hurts them, what's wrong with them, what's mm-hmm. good in their lives, or whatever, what really truly brings them joy and things like that. So it gives us buttons to push as far as how to destroy that joy, how to right, like, yeah. threaten you with that, or how to really uh, drag out those, uh, like push those buttons of things that truly did hurt you, or what aspects of those things hurt you. Right, okay. And we have a lot more examples of people seeking help online, and it's, it would sound cruel to use that as research, but... I think what we're, and I think horror might be a bit cyclical, and other genres might be as well, but I think right. what we're seeing with horror now is we're, we're echoing, we're maybe Lovecraft's grandchildren now, because okay. we're echoing the idea of there are no easy answers. And a lot of, a lot of Lovecraft is middle-aged, well-educated, straight, white guy, something weird, something even weird, maybe a book, oh my <laughs> God, with the three love burning eye. You know, right. And so you look at Gemma Files' experimental film, which the A story is this woman is researching use of, of film and experimental filmmaking in, in, in uh, Canada, I think early 20th century or, or early 20th century. Uh, and there is something about a goddess that can come into our world through silver nitrate film, which is also very, very phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's really a story about a woman in a marriage with a son who's autistic and her struggles with that and relationships with her mom. Unbelievable pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is front and center and not like, oh, here's character development worksheet, you know, 23, where introduce this and then you feel it. You feel this. Where, you know, she's not a middle-aged male architect like most protagonists of horror stories were for the longest time or like crap. Yeah. You know, um, middling, youngish, foppish, yep. academic, yep. rich, yeah, near do well, gad about. Yeah. That's that evolved into like an architect. They're all architects for some reason. They're all like <laughs> happily married, hot wife, architects. Yeah. Architects yeah. like plans. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well they like neat drawings and orderly so schemes and so I guess they're fun to push over. It is. No, it totally is, especially when somebody moves in next door. Wow. <laughs> they could be anything. They, or the, the house could be haunted. They yeah. could be a banshee. They could be a vampire that's going to fuck an architect right up. But uh, now, yeah, we have these multidimensional people. We have intersectionality as far as what Gemma Fowles' character, who's, you know, I can't remember right mm. now, I just read the book, um, what she's going through in that book mirrors a lot of her life. So she had a lot to draw on. If I were to write a story about a girl going through, I could probably do a pretty damn good job. Yeah. And I would be drawing on 
things because people are so much more open now or interviewing people or basing it on somebody I know or everybody I know. Mm. Um, there was a fun quote once about if you know a, an author, uh, it's too bad your whole life is <laughs> open to their perusal. Yeah. Don't tell their authors anything about yourself because they're going to use it. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, and that's how those things can hit so close to home. Right, yeah. okay. But with, uh, with, I think where we are now is there are no easy answers. Okay. Yeah. You know, is, is where we're coming through. And that's why I said there's, there's this goddess and silver nitrate because this, we get these really interesting and unique ideas. I've never read anything quite like what Gemma is doing because there's a slight sci-fi element to it that it's the silver nitrate film in particular because the, I read it maybe a year or two ago, like regular, like Eastman Kodak stock or, or video camera doesn't work. It's the silver nitrate for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. But you not to spoil anything, but it doesn't, how the story resolves, it doesn't give you a nice, neat, mm. you know, answer, you know, uh, and, and Lovecraft did the same thing. And reading the horror that I'm reading now is it's, it's, there is that element versus, you know, Stephen King with, um, you know, we never quite knew why the Overlook worked, how it worked in The Shining, but uh, in Salem's Lot, okay, the vampires and nice, neat ending. Da, yep. da, da. It's not like they leave the town and like, the town was empty the whole time or right. you know, whatever. So I, th I think the age and uh, what we're looking at right now with information technology, notwithstanding what we talked about earlier with people, you know, your lack of research skills, right. Uh, the idea of horror can get away with not executing plot according to the checklist. Okay. As long as the impact is strong, you know, I can't, and I can't really think of a story of a novel I've read in the last little while where we have had the A to B. This is this is how the monster works. Right. You know, yeah. for whatever reason, yeah. you you use it to your advantage and you defeat the monster in the end. Mm. It's a bit more of it's not quite survival because there can be the act of fighting the monster, but it's, there's a lot your questions answered at the end. Okay. But I think that adds more to the horrific. And I'll go back to the word offensive impact. That as rational creatures, we want to know you have cancer. Why? You have a family history and, you know, you smoked. Okay, how do we fight it? The chemo and the surgery and this and like, okay, and your odds are, are this. And if you live, you, you are on this side of the odds. And if you die, you're on this side of the odds. And I think horror can kind of say, well, you can live, you can die, or, you know, you, you become a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why did I become a tortoise? Well, and then and, you know, let's tie, pretend I came up with something better that ties lung cancer or smoking or, or whatever into... The, the outcome, and there's no, not to go too Kafka-esque, but just that, that horrific element of of, uh, uh, of the unknown, and that we, as the great rationalizing animal, there are some things we can't rationalize, we can't understand the universe, this is big, infinite, complex thing, right, uh, and bringing it down with, rather than, than Lovecraft's, you know, you know, foppish architect, as Lydia <laughs> perfectly put it, to put it into a, a much more diverse set of cast of characters who are going to get all the answers. And I think that's what we all, whether relationships end or diseases or um, you know, a reaction to something or just these things that happen in our lives, you know, weather like the, the tornado that hit here in Ottawa. Yeah. Why? One uh, in F4. Six tornadoes. <laughs> yeah. Not one tornado, but six tornadoes. One, F4's uh, tornadoes in in this area, yeah. which not, you know, the flat American Midwest. Yeah. Why did it happen? Why did it hit those areas? Why did it hit, you know, Arlington Woods, which you know, was across the street? Beautiful trees, beautiful... Why? You're never going to know. Yeah. 
and you swap out the tornado with something else. Because they build it on an ancient mm. trailer park. <laughs> <laughs> so just to be just to be clear, like you would you would suggest that that's tied to like the kind of cultural moment that we're in right now? Because I know Brandon will want to hear this with the kind of stuff you write, but like, do you think we're inhabiting a time when people see that there aren't easy answers for problems in general, or is this just like an evolution of writers? Well, why why, why will I not want to hear that? Well, because you're all about the solar punk and we're going to fix everything. Oh, yeah. Like, everything's going to uh, be fine. Everything is going to be fine. Bad? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the idea that there sometimes there are no easy answers, and I think that is that is horrific. That is offensive mm-hmm. to the, the front of the human brain. And so a lot of horror, like the play in, in, in the back, I mean, Stephen King said that um, uh, in the basement we have alligators that, that need some raw meat now and then, and that's what horror does. Oh, and I think his direct quote from yeah. Dance Macabre is, um, Lennon McCartney said, all you need is love. And I believe that, man, just keep the gators fed. But I think horror now is becoming a bit more intellectual in its execution. It can still play to the to the base, but I think it's becoming a bit more intellectual in its execution. In our current information, because we're, in we're in the information era, right? Yeah. And so the idea of all the data, all the information, all the knowledge is meaningless because there is more dimensions, more elements to it that you cannot keep in your head. Yeah. You got through it. Congratulations. You know, uh, to go back to Tremblay's uh, Head Full of Ghosts, doesn't wrap up nice and neatly. Mm. There's still some questions at the end. His follow-up book, um, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, is the same thing. And I haven't read Cabin at the End of the World, which is his latest. I really need to read both of those. But uh, Disappearance of Devil's Rock is uh, the... This kid, and it starts, I think, with a phone call where this kid has two friends, and the kid, they're out in the woods, and the kid's gone. And the two friends don't know. Okay. And it is a police investigation and, and, and how, it, how it affects the three families. And it doesn't, a um, bit of a spoiler, but it doesn't resolve nice and neatly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions left unsaid. And there's a lot of contradictions in the story and a lot of confusion. But it... Uh, as much as Headful of Ghosts really gives you this great story with you're not quite sure what happened, this one is a lot more um, amorphous in its ending. Okay. And you're left wondering, well, what did happen to this kid? How did he disappear? Where is he now? Is is kind of the, the villain, not villain, but mysterious kind of fringe character, a horrific murderer, a pathetic, you know, uh, young Jim Leahy to bring him back to Trailer Park Boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a there's a lot of questions posed that aren't answered, but you're brought along for the the horrific what the what the mother and and the sister have to go through, especially when they see echoes of him everywhere in the house, wondering is he alive? Is he not alive? Right. Okay. Mm, it's a lot easier, I think, nowadays too, with our trust being corroded to the point mm-hmm. that it is. Like uh, you could tell stories years ago and. Everyone would be like, "Oh, it wouldn't happen like that because the police, or it wouldn't happen yeah. like that because the priests, or it wouldn't happen like that because the hospital it wouldn't happen like that because their parents wouldn't happen like that because politicians." Do we trust any of them fucking people anymore? No. no. Not a uh, you can look anywhere on the news, and you're going to see people having very varied and wonderful problems with all of those factions of life, and you can play to or with those trusts um mm. you know you can still trust the police and not trust the hospitals and flip-flop that yeah 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 and depending on what your story what your story means right so we're gonna play to the fact that we can't trust any of them. and there's something bigger out there that we'll never quite understand so it's easier to leave things on these cliffhangers these uh what's the word I, i'm always like what's the word that humans <laughs> use 
Uh, <laughs> Don't you give away your secret. <laughs> ambiguous. Ah. I used to get a lot of like, ooh, good story, but ambiguous ending fix. And oh, really? now I'm getting a lot of, ooh, I love that meaty, ambiguous ending. Hmm. So it helps just in the way I naturally write. And I think a lot of other authors are having fun enjoying that too because we don't have all the answers. And it's hard to wrap everything up on a nice, neat note that doesn't end up with an explainer that is spoon-feeding something to your audience right. or smacks of trust the cops, trust the priests, trust the hospital, the politicians will fix it. Yep. And here's the ambulance, and we'll all get a blanket and sit on the bumper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hard to believe mm, now. Yeah, yeah. It's very much it, it. It's very much about the individual. The only person you can trust really is is you. And all this information that's around you. Unless you're Bob Clark. Yeah. <laughs> and then magic is murder. Yep. Wait, murder is magic. magic. No, magic is murder. Oh, it's murder is magic. But kiss I'm, is kill. That's oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yep. I love yeah. Tony. I love no, Tony. I totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you said kisses kill, I had no idea what the hell either of you were talking about. And then the minute, I was like, oh, okay, I'm with you now. Yeah. Took me about 20 seconds. But yes, absolutely. No, I think that um, you can only barely trust yourself too many, mm. unfortunately. Well, okay, so you can't trust yourself. You can't trust anything around you. You can't trust the information that we have access to now in like. That's why God invented shower beers and givers. Because you just go about your day. Not that I'm a shower beers and giver type of person whatsoever, but many people cope uh, mm. in that in this world. And not yeah. in a fictional world either. No, no, we're gonna the, the, make the, these the everyday fictional human beings and shove them through some wondrous bull crap in, yeah. in fiction. Um, and force them to not be able to trust anything, let alone themselves. But it's so much more fun now that you can't trust all of those things plus you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the textbook definition of fun, Lydia. <laughs> but it does tie back to what we were talking about very, very early that hopefully will uh, be edited into the podcast. Yeah, let's find it. The idea of, is this table real? Oh, yeah. And are any of you real? Because one of, one of the great lines in The Matrix is, well, what is real? All we know is the neurological, uh, neurochemical, electrical, chemical uh, stimuli that reach your brain. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, you, and in terms of objective reality, and even then, to, to Lydia's point, the idea of, are you really you? Mm-hmm. you know, and, and something I like, people ask me and on panels, and I hate this one, it's on a horror panel, it's like, okay, this is like, Lydia, introduce yourself and tell everybody what you're afraid of. Uh, and you get the, oh, spiders or bugs or, you know, icebergs. Dragons. Or, <laughs> my, my greatest fear, and, and it's, it's a bit of a, a vanity thing, it's a bit of a, look at how clever I am, but it's the beginning of the panel, and I'll yeah. the time of, you know, say something else that's even more clever. But it's, I'm afraid I'm not who I think I am. Oh, I like that. You know, and if, if I wake up one morning and it's like, you know what? I consider myself a good person, but I'm really not. Or I am, you know, I am racist or I am sexist or, uh, you know, uh, I've I've committed crimes, and but I've rationalized them to such an extent that I can, I can acknowledge that sequence of events happen, but morally I am a good person. And then, Something changes. Yeah. Is, no, wait a second. I'm not. I'm not. And you know, I think the, the, all we really have and all we can be sure of, and this is what Descartes, because I think therefore I am, is the end of a very long yeah. are you thing. Um, which which leads me to a joke. Um, uh, Descartes is sitting in a bar and he, he's finished like his third beer, and the bartender says, "Mr. Carr, another beer." And he says, "Oh, I think not." And disappears. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know, all we really have at the end is our, our thoughts and, and what our brain is interpreting us. And if we can't trust those, there's nothing. There's nothing that you can grab. Yeah. And man, the great rationalizing animal needs. Yeah. So is this desk real? Yes. How do you know? Yeah, exactly. Are your thoughts real? Yeah. Now, are we just the, the uh, what's Bill Hicks said, the universe imagining itself? Oh, yeah. Which often gives people rise to that superhuman, I can do anything anyway. It doesn't really matter what I do, say, think, feel. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and people really start to lose touch with the, those around them by thinking like that, mm. right? And yeah, that, totally. that it doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, and that can rise to some really great story prompt because is this table really here? Mm. Is that body really dead in the, in the yeah. yard? It doesn't really matter. Or waking up and realizing that. So that is, that is a scary thing. Yeah, that's terrifying. Beyond, I'm getting like, nervous just sitting here talking about this. Yeah, we are waking up and thinking, you know, I could really do better with my investments. <laughs> what you were positioning of, I've killed people. <laughs> I've been rationalizing it all along. Like, that's quite a realization. I mean, Memento, I think, I'm just, just trying to think of a really good example of that, the film Memento. Yeah. It does, it does play with, um, uh, uh, he has amnesia, so he can only, his memories are just based on the, the evidence around him. Yeah. But, you know, what, what he learns about himself and what we learn about the character, that, that unraveling of who, uh, who he really is. Uh, yeah. I think Breaking Bad does that well uh, over the course of five seasons, though. But this, this guy who, it's not like he was a badass and, 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 a, and, and you know, I, I, people say, oh, he's a psychopath. He's not a psychopath. I think he's just a man who looked inside himself and saw the devil and yeah. was cool with it. Yeah. And as a scientist, was able to rationalize his idea. Yes, I am. That I am a remorseless son right. of a bitch, and that's fine. But he didn't start that way. Yeah, he's been. He was a geek, and then da da da, and then he's then he's betrayed, and then becomes a science teacher, and then has a couple of moments. And there's a YouTube video of when does Heisenberg actually start? And, see, mm. and I like that. It's a great people going. But yeah, that idea of he is not who he thought he was, mm. and push came to shove, uh, and he 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 looked very very deep inside himself and saw the devil right you know versus something like um uh death the the charles bronson version of death wish which is oh yeah. he had a traumatic event yeah and and that pushed him over the uh, that idea of uh walter white is over you know at 50 yeah really discovered who he really was and that but that's 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 hard to do like that that's like a plus advanced level yeah writing if you could pull that off which is why there's only one show just existential dread everywhere it's becoming more popular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Because I, I think we're all, like, you know, in our daily lives, it's just our own existential dread all the time. Is it because it's easier, or is it because people's re people have revisited these great literary authors who, mm. that, that was the biggest parlor trick in a lot of horror and gothic literature, I think, and it's become popular because we're revisiting that, perhaps? Could be. I mean, we are, we are increasingly, I think, getting in a, in a world where it is hard to trust any any one thing or anything at all. Like we're getting to the point, and I know that courts and, and police and even like intelligence agencies are starting to grapple with, like we're getting to the point where you will soon be able to fabricate video of people saying whatever you want. Yeah. That yeah. will be impossible to tell from the real thing. Mm. Yeah. And like once that's fully done, if it's not already done, well, like how could you ever believe any video you ever see? Cause I can make president Obama or Matt or Brandon say anything I want yeah. and it's video and you won't be able to tell it from an unedited version. So yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, truth is kind of under attack. Some, some deliberately, some like through the implications of our technology. Yeah. When you're using the word truth, literally earlier you use trust, I'll use the word faith. Mm. 
because I think one of the changes we're seeing here in the in the late 20th or 21st century is a breakdown of at least organized religion, if oh, yeah. faith yes. overall. Yeah. Uh, and when you don't believe in a just God or a just universe, mm-hmm. or even the idea of bad things happen to good people, but God is in control, God has a plan. Yeah. When you take that mathematical right angle uh, thinking away, mm-hmm. and you're just adrift, yeah. and so it's the human constructs of, of police or church or, or hospitals or, or, or public infrastructure or what my own eyes are telling me or even just, yeah. you know, the, the, a lot of people went to church, weren't really strong believers, but at least thought, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, I do think that there's a God and that lays like the foundation yeah. for everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're getting, as, as uh, people's faith is starting to disappear, more and more people are identifying as, as agnostic yep. or atheist, or at least there's something, but, you know, like for my... Not to get too personal, but people ask me, "Do you believe in God?" And my my response is, "I have not found a definition of God that I can believe in." Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. could it be all higher levels of consciousness and intelligence that are capable of manipulating the universe at a different level than I am? Sure, mm. I can't prove or disprove that. But that makes that makes sense because there's a me books floating around my body right now. Like, hey, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> You think this intestine is the entire universe? I don't know. Somebody says that there's another one, but it's smaller. <laughs> but those, those wackos over. But uh, you know, when when you do take that the organized religious element, and and, and you can separate faith from from or, or spirituality from religion and faith. Mm-hmm. But we are starting to lose faith and trust in in, in all manner of things. Yeah. Uh, that um, like my father-in-law, for example, was in Kiwanis. And he was he was a chartered accountant, and he was with a, with a big firm, and he was a high level position. And it it wasn't just an expectation; it was like an or an unspoken agreement. It was just the way the universe worked. Whereas if you were a man in that position, mm-hmm. you volunteered. That's like the sun comes up and it's going to go back down. It's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Or Knights of Columbus, or some yeah. other lions, or some yeah. other organization. Yeah. Uh, and now that, and people are like, oh, I, I volunteer, you know, I, I donate to charity, or you know, I do two hours at a soup kitchen. But that, that high-level organization. There's a book that I, I wanted to read for some time now, and I keep forgetting the name of it. But it's called, I think it's called Bowling Alone. Okay. And this idea of there used to be bowling leagues. This ties back to what we were talking about with the suburbs, and that is how you met your neighbors, or at least you, you yeah. had community. Now, you go home. You close the door. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. 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 You, know, you don't talk to your neighbor. <laughs> yeah. There's no sense of community. There's no and and community and faith. Yeah. Because we have faith in whether it's the same religion or the faith that the buses are never on time. Yeah. We yeah. take that as a matter yeah. of faith, yeah. uh, or that you know we can get out of the building, or, or this neighbor, or you know the owner of that that store. Those those agreed tenants in our belief system. It doesn't have to be about a supernatural thing. Yeah. That's all breaking down. Yeah. Totally. And one of the conversations I have almost inevitably with my students every year when I start teaching the emergence of Christianity is, you know, someone asks, like, why do they convert? You know, because Christianity is so much less cool than, like, Norse religion or, or Greek religion. And, like, the thing is, those gods weren't nice. Like, they, you couldn't trust them. They did lots of horrible things. They were duplicitous. And basically, like, yeah, the gods were out there, but we try not to interact with them because they do bad things. And there is an appeal to the message that, yeah, you, okay, there's this other God that there's rules, but is essentially benevolent. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, that, that's, that's a very comforting world to move into that. Yeah. I can trust the guy, the guy, the being that's in charge mm-hmm. and yeah, subtracting that the way that we 
you know, historically speaking, recently have. Yeah, that is fairly profound. That one idea that you can fall back to, that there is an essentially uh, benevolent figure in control of it all. Yeah. Aside from when he was young and fun, God, (laughs) pull some tricks on people. Sure. But other than that, like, they they seem benign compared to a lot of other religions. And then you can take Christianity as the the high points and the high points of other religions and sort of masquerade one as the other. And we definitely convince people to convert quite easily, I'm sure. Especially compared to a pantheon. Yeah. They don't have to, like, not trust and be afraid of perhaps hundreds of gods. Yeah. Yeah. don't want to deal with them. Yeah, exactly. It can be placated. Yeah, totally. Some days. Some days. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's like Old Testament God. That well, just, yeah. I mean, Old Testament God is a little bit more strident about follow the rules or, just you, know, you know, I'll volcano you or something. <laughs> yeah. It's a perfectly legitimate punishment to volcano people. But, I mean, they, there's a difference between a God that says these are the rules and you must follow them. Right. And a God who just... Look, I, I don't care. I'm just going to mess with you. <laughs> yeah, because because that's fun. Which yeah, is what yeah, yeah. you know. Most of the like the the pre-Christian pantheons have at least one figure like that. Yeah, there's just true. a supernatural figure out there who can do whatever he wants or she whatever she wants and yeah. will just cause. Yeah, exactly. And most of them are thoroughly unreliable. Even the ones that aren't like that, they're spiteful. They're jealous. They're they, horny. They're horny, yeah. right? Yeah, they might just, you know, turn into a swan and sleep with, sleep with your wife because, you know, why not? not them, they're going to pay someone else. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that has to have been a very disturbing world to inhabit. The oh, one yeah, where there are these terrifying. Yeah, there are these supremely powerful beings out there that just mess around. Yeah. Maybe and, that's kind of, because that's sort of where we are now, because you can't trust anything. They're like, you yeah. looking at all those large institutions, those dinosaurs. Yeah. that I named yeah, that really are like pantheons and we can't fucking trust anymore they yeah. dip down and fuck with us yeah yeah, yeah. Trump Zeus Trump Zeus yeah, sure yeah. yeah yeah. fuck who they want <laughs> <laughs> Thunderbolts around yeah. basically yeah oh man I hadn't thought of it that way before <laughs> that totally changes my own yeah that's funny that you mentioned about like um, you know you come home and you close the door and, and you're totally isolated from the community I was talking with a friend of mine about that and how like you like say here in downtown Ottawa, um, the only real community connection that I have is my local coffee shop, and only because I go in there regularly enough, probably too regularly, um, but enough that the staff knew my work. I would come in, I would set my laptop down, and, and by the time I take it off my coat and walk to the counter, there's my teeth, hmm. and they knew my name, and I knew that my name, and, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of cool. Not just because I get my order faster, but because I've established a relationship. And that tea is an aspect of faith. Yeah, and I don't say that uh, uh, um, uh, humorously, but yeah, that that yeah, idea. Absolutely, we know you. We have this relationship, and that's one thing that we can, you know, stick yep. our stick our relationship on is that you order the same. Versus, you know, like if you came in, you order different things. Yeah, exactly. The other element of faith there would probably be the banter of, oh, what's Brandon going to order this? Yeah, totally. Yeah, because at least that's somewhat consistent. And then when uh, and it's been that way with my particular coffee shop for the past maybe year, year and a half, is all of a sudden there was a huge change over the staff. I don't know why university students or something and, and there hasn't been like there continues to be a high turnover this time so every few months everybody changes and so I don't have that anymore there's maybe one person who's still there who knows my order so it's a crapshoot whether they're there when I go in and so I that ele- that element of my faith is gone now I don't there's, there's no consistency there's no connection there anymore and, and it really struck me I was like well shit they don't know my order anymore that's fantastic because I owe it the same sort of experience in, co- in a coffee shop and as soon as it starts getting to the point that people recognize me you know my order 
ask my name and stuff. I'm like, God, I gotta switch cabs. <laughs> I can't handle this. Really? I just want to come in, order my thing, record the stuff, take my money. Yeah. Because um, I, I was just thinking that in some of the spaces where we do cross over, like the unspoken rule is you don't interact with people, like elevators. Yeah, oh yeah. Only a complete psychopath talks to you in the elevator. Yeah, totally. It's great. Yeah, right. people we're, used to ask me where, where do we find these elevators? <laughs> <laughs> like, have you been talk to a lot of elevators? Well, even, how was your weekend? It's like, fuck you! <laughs> oh, I've, I've said straight up, that is a dangerous question. How yeah. do you know how someone's weekend is? Or don't, yeah, you shouldn't wish people could weekend ask them how do we know. Just stay out of it, man. Yeah. And then, he said, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, um, it is a dangerous thing to wish somebody that weekend or ask how their weekend was. Yeah. You never fucking know nowadays. And people are a little more communicative and we're fed up with lying to yeah, a certain absolutely. extent. But yeah, um, it is nice to have quiet because we're kind of inundated online. Yeah, Maybe we're totally. inundated alone mm. in our homes. And yeah. like I do some uh, of what I consider valuable volunteering with working with the Horror Writers Association. But no one knows about that, like mm. Rotary Alliance Club or something mm. like that. It's not out there shouting from rooftops, oh, I'm volunteering and I'm an awesome yeah. person. Well adjusted, <laughs> look at me. You don't wear the fez and drive the little golf cart no, around. Exactly. And or have a ring that, yeah. that yeah. explains oh, to those who know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is interesting when you say it like that. It does make me think of the idea of was that obligation a form of guilt remediation? Mm. You know, the, the idea of Am I giving back out of the goodness of my heart? Or I want to do this so at least I can say I'm not taking. So it's not, it's almost like it's like I, I believe that there's no such thing as a selfless act because, uh, you know, a stranger is like, oh, you're, you're a um, uh, bone marrow donor and it's a very, very painful process. And you know, a stranger across the country and don't know their name and maybe don't even speak the same language, but, you know, you did it. And, you know, that's a selfless act. Why did you do it? What do they, what do they say? By and large. I couldn't live with myself if mm. yeah. selfless act. I'm not taking away from it. Benevolent act, wonderful act. I hope oh, we, yeah. if I'm ever tapped, I hope I have the courage to do it. It is not a purely selfless act. Right. So it makes me wonder if this idea of you were that so that we could at least say, well, we're not complete takers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and is it I'm doing this because I want to help people or is it I'm doing it because I need to balance the books? And some of it is demonstrative too. Like if you think of those organizations like Lions or Kiwanis or whatever, not just that you're doing something good, it's that you're seen to be doing something good and yes. everyone gets to see that you are this good. Yeah, this it's good pretty person. rare with a person who is, is doing this really truly out of the goodness of their own heart, or they really like serving food and they mm. have an office job. So the two don't meet and mm. like, well, I'll go volunteer at a soup kitchen. Mm. I get to serve slop and make people <laughs> smile. And I love this. Like I genuinely love this. Like I like, I loved Dragon Boat racing. I ended up on a Dragon Boat team purely by accident. Okay. And I don't remember what charity it was for. Like, I don't, I don't care what charity it was for. I had fun. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. like being on the water. I don't get a chance to do that. So if anyone was ever looking for, like, a spare on a Dragon Boat team, but that's not about a charity. Yeah. And I'd rather just be, like, that silent ringer that goes in and just paddle boats and, like, checks out real quick after. <laughs> I have fun doing the Now, thing. there's a story problem. Just That's like a weird. traveling dragon boat mercenary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who is this? Have you seen this person? I did. It just roams from dragon boat yeah. event to dragon boat event. Dragon and, boat yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The first, awesome. the 
you're at the back of the boat, and the person in front of you sees your oar moving. And then at the end of the race, turns around and says, "Hey, we won!" And you're gone. And yeah, you're gone. Exactly. Oh, oh. <laughs> the Phantom Dragon Boat Rower. It's rare though that a thing. Well, I see from the motion sensors that the horde is starting to disperse so we can power down our transmitter and recharge our batteries. We had a wonderful time talking with our fellow survivors today, so thank you to Matt and Lydia for joining us down here in our underground safe haven. And thank you to fellow survivor Chris Kesner for providing his song Ode to Sunshine, which is our intro and outro music. And thank you as well to all you survivors out there for joining us for our conversation today. Stay safe, keep your perimeters secure, and always aim for the head. And we'll look forward to reaching you again with our next broadcast from the Wasteland.